part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. I'll start this morning by a little test, a little quiz. I realize it's early in the year, but I, and I realize that for some of you it may even be early in the morning at 11 o'clock. But it's one of those things, I'm going to read about six, seven, eight verses. And not that you could quote these verses back, but if you think, you know, I've heard that verse in the Bible somewhere. I've heard that verse before. Just kind of raise your hand. And then I want you to figure out, what do all these verses have in common? There's a a common string that's going to kind of, you know, contain all these different verses. Something that they have in common. And so uh, let me start with the first one. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, have you heard that before? I think I've read that one, or at least a part of it I remember. What about this? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he has called you to be holy, you should be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Have you heard that before? You know it's in the Bible. It's not that you can say, okay, that is this chapter, this verse, but you've heard it before. What about this one? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How many of y'all have heard that one before? I'm seeing more affirmation on that one than, than the ones before. What about this? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live by righteousness. By his wounds, we have, you have been healed. Getting a little bit more familiar? Uh, For Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Anybody see the connection yet that's kind of going there? Okay, a couple more. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) Some of us are living that one. (laughs) Yesterday and today. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you might also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Have you heard that one before? Again, not that you could just kind of pick it out and say it's in this book, this chapter, and that verse, but you've heard that before. One last one. Oh, wait, two last. Cast all your cares, your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. We probably have that in the cross stitch somewhere in the house, you know, or at least grandma did, okay? Last one. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, about everybody on that one. You know, we're, we're familiar with that. Anybody feel, find the connection? No, they're all about God, and they're all about Jesus, okay? So, so that's the givens, okay? Do, do you know anything else that says, okay, all these verses have this in common? All written by the Apostle Peter. Let's go even a little bit farther. You want to venture out beyond that? They're all in First Peter. 
They are. And that's what we begin to study today. Every one of those verses, very familiar verses to many of us, at least, you know, some of those you can say, I, I know I've heard that before. They're all in First Peter. And today, uh, whenever we start a new series, and especially when we start a new book, I always go by this old adage, you have to have the information before you can have the, infor- uh, the inspiration. And today, I, I don't know that we're going to go out of here going, you know, man, how that was a sermon. In fact, I don't know that we ever go out of here on Sundays and go, man, now that was a sermon. And really so inspired that it's just life-changing. But in order to truly grasp when we study something, remember, context is everything. Understanding the background, who it's written to, why it was written, all the things that were going on is so important for us to understand why these words were penned in such a way. Now, again, the Word of God is timeless. It's one of those that it is as relevant today as 2,000 years ago when God inspired Peter to write this. But by going back and kind of looking at the background and looking at the context and everything, we'll find that it really is as relevant as our life today. And I think you're going to find that more and more as we go through this. It will probably take us a good eight or nine, ten weeks to, to go through this, even if we go at it somewhat of a, a little bit of a jog through it. But it is a rich book, guys. It is one of those that is just re- it's inspiring. It's, uh, it causes us to reflect. And it's a good book for the beginning of the year. Now, I don't know if you are one of those that makes New Year's resolutions or if you make New Year's hopes or New Year's throw a dart in the sky and hope it lands somewhere. I don't know where you would fall in all that. I've never been one of those that really said, here's my three resolutions this year. But there's something about something new with the new year that does inspire you to, okay, look, this is something I want to work on. And one of the things that God is kind of, you know, one is a very practical. Uh, this year I want to kind of clean out the house and scale down and really become simple. So that's a kind of a practical thing. But another thing that God really spoke to me this year about in my own life, is returning back to the disciplines. The disciplines of, of the, the life of Christ. And, you know, what does it mean to follow Christ? Now, when I say that, I'm the first one to tell you, God does not love me more when I am disciplined. And I do, you know, have a better prayer life, a better study life, a better loving uh, life to, to others. He doesn't love me more. He loves me completely because he's just that God. Okay? And I can't earn my salvation more by doing good things and becoming more disciplined. But here's one thing that I just know about my own life. I have more joy in my life when I am doing the disciplines of the Christian life. I'm not more saved. I'm not more loved. I just found I have more joy. Why? Because my mind is kind of firing more in a biblical mode than when it's not. Do you know when your mind is firing in biblical mode? Can you, can you tell, okay, this, that was a non-biblical mode day. Have you ever been there before? And every thought that you had was one of bitterness, anger, and I want justice, I want it right now. You know, you, you, you were ready to call Jesus down on somebody. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah. And so we have days like that. And I can tell you, that's not biblical mode. Then we open up the Bible and we start to absorb his word and his word begins to to massage our heart and begin to work in our heart. And then all of a sudden, instead of calling Jesus down to that person, we begin to lift that person up to Jesus. It's really kind of a transformational thing. And it's not that all of a sudden we just became a better person. No, all we did is return back to these disciplines and we're reacting out of what God has already done for us. 
So I want to make it very, very clear that as we go through this book, because this book is, is really, I mean, Peter is one of those that he kind of says it like it is a lot of times. And he's going to call us to return some, to some disciplines, but it's for a reason. And that reason is because he truly wants us to get back to a place where there is joy and rejoicing in our lives. It's one of those that, uh, this is the same Peter that walked on water. An amazing thing. He's the only disciple that I know of that walked on water, the only one recorded that walked out there to Jesus. But he's also the same one that denied Christ three times. And so we see that he had ups and downs. In fact, it's one of the things that, uh, I don't know which of the biblical writers you kind of identify with the most, but in the New Testament we really have four main writers. And really three uh, prominently, but... uh, how many of you are more like, in the way you just think and process Christianity, you're more like Paul and Luke. Paul is like an attorney making his case. Just the facts, ma'am. And he gets the facts and he builds a foundation. Then he builds upon this foundation, you know, these truths. And some of you, that's just the way your mind works. You just, and Luke's the same way. Luke was a doctor, okay, so very scientific. He was a historian. He liked facts. He didn't just like fantasy. And so Luke and Paul wrote in a way that is very just kind of logical. And that's why when we go to the book of Romans and we see Paul writing that, then we're going, okay, he's building a case. I've always thought that the best way to read Romans is pretend that Paul is an attorney and he's making his case. And he comes all the way through and kind of gives them the verdict at the end that is a conclusion because he said, I've built my case very well. But then there's other writers there's John. And John is just one of those that, John would just come up and say, Bradley, I need a hug. And just come up and, and he'll hug you. That's just John. He's this emotional guy. He's this loving guy. And John is like, you know, I'm going to tell you truth and it's going to be biblical truth, but can we hug first? He's just this, he's, he's uh, the oldest writer. By the time he's finished out his writing, he's the oldest writer by far. We kind of call him the granddaddy, granddaddy of the New Testament. And he just, everything that he does is kind of from this emotion of love, and he just has this genuine love. And there's many of you like that. I don't like you, but I love you. Let's hug. And then there's Peter, who's not always logical and not always loving. He kind of goes, if... If Paul and Luke are writing from the head and John is writing from the heart, Peter is writing from the gut. He's one of those guys, and please forgive me, I I went over this and over this in my sermon notes, going, you know, should I even say that? But if you're familiar with Southern slang and kind of good old boy, you'll get this. Peter is the guy that says, hold my beer, and then goes and does this, okay? (laughs) Just doesn't think, you know, just, man, I'll, I'll be the first one to try that. That doesn't look like too far to jump off. Peter is just this guy. Now, if you're offended by that, see me afterwards. I, I will explain that. But, but it really does. I see Peter as that kind of guy. If you know kind of good old boy South stuff, you know, that guy, every group had one. You know, every group of guys always had somebody that, I'm not going to do it. You do it. I'm not going to do it. Oh, he'll do it. And this is Peter. And Peter writes from that. And that's why he's walking on water in one moment, guys, and and then yet he's denying Christ because he's always kind of going from the gut. 
Now, we're really, in our way that we do life, we're one of those three. You approach a life either very logically and it's just, you know, it, you foundationally, and you won't do step three until step two is somewhat accomplished. And you just, that's how you approach life. Some of you, it's just like, man, I am laid back. I, it does, but I love you. Give me a hug. And just, you know, love is everything. Relationship is everything to you. And so you just really emotions, not that you're emotional, but you just, that's, that's kind of your heart, okay? And then there's some of you that really, in that crowd of five, you're the one that everybody turns to and go, okay, you try it. And you kind of live life from the gut. I like Peter because of that. I like it because Peter's the kind that will sit there and say, you know, when, they, when they're ready to come get uh, Christ and arrest him, Peter's the one that says, not on my watch. And he's as brave as he can be. And yet, not even 24 hours later, to a little girl, aren't you the one that was with the Christ? No, that wasn't me. I, I like that. Not because I respect that about Peter. I can understand that about Peter. There's an old hymn that's one of my favorites. And there's a line in there that I just so relate to. Prone to wander, oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Have you ever felt that before? You love Jesus. We sing songs that we adore him, that, we, that he's awesome. And yet, are those moments in your life that you really do kind of live out that old hymn? Prone to wander, oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And it's only God's grace and it's only his love and it's his stability and the finished work of Christ that keeps us afloat in those times. Peter knew that. Not that Paul didn't know that. Not that Luke didn't know that. Certainly not that John didn't know that. But Peter lived it. And so when Peter is writing here, we get this guy who's writing, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. It's not Peter's word. But he is. It's the personality that that Peter has. And God allowed those personalities to come through. That's why, as theologians, we can sit there and go, oh, that kind of looks Johannian to me, meaning John. Oh, that looks like Paul wrote that. That has a Pauline kind of touch to it. And we can see the different characteristics in the writing because God allowed, even though it was God's truth and it's his word, he allowed those personalities of those people that he used and inspired to write to come through. He didn't just kind of, you know, say things and they wrote it down, and so here's the book of Peter. Now, his personality is all over this. He speaks from the gut, not so much from the heart, not so much from the head. He's the one that you're in, in the group that, did he just say that? And you don't have, have, is there one in your group that you don't have to wonder how they feel about things? Yeah. That's Peter. You know, he's just going to say it, and he'll think about it later and go, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that. Or I shouldn't have said it that way. But because of that frankness, because of that personality, what we see here is that he has this, he writes to these people. And who's he writing to? Well, it's not just one church. He's actually writing to, to several different churches. And, but look what it says in 1 Peter 1.1. I think we're going to get through two verses this morning. So, so maybe it's going to be more than nine or ten weeks. But, but this first verse, how many of you skip past usually the first verses when it has names or when it has cities in it? And yet the names in the cities really show us a lot. It really kind of, again, provides context for us. Look what it says, Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Can you read that? 
And how many of you just kind of your eyes glaze over and go, okay, get to the verse that means something to me. And yet, guys, I promise you, this verse right here, we could preach five weeks. I won't, but we could preach five weeks from this. This is a mouthful. Not because it's just names of cities. It's a mouthful because he's laying the foundation. Who am I writing to? I'm, reading, or I'm writing to the elect. And then once God has chosen you, and we'll see that come out of the scripture in the next couple of weeks. How they didn't choose God, God chose them. And then how they are exiles. An exile, okay, you're, this isn't really your homeland. And this is going to come out in the verses. And then he writes, and all of a sudden we see all these different cities there. This is what we call in the Bible a circular letter. Sometimes we have a letter like 1 Corinthians. Who was 1 Corinthians written to? The church at Corinth, the Corinthians. It's kind of obvious. It's not that they didn't pass it on and go, Here, here's some good information over to the people in Ephesus, or they didn't take it and give it to another city. But it was written to that church for the specific needs that were there, and yet the truth kind of applied. This letter was written with the intentionality to be passed around, to go from one church to the next. In fact, can we show that next map? I know it's kind of hard to see there, and I just all the geeks just go, ooh, a map. Yeah. <laughs> uh, over here is Rome, and that's where he's writing from. If you look all the way over here, Peter's actually writing this in Rome. And 1,500 miles away, we begin to see Pontus. We begin to see these different cities that he mentioned over here in a land called Asia Minor. Okay, it's not Europe, it's Asia, it's Asia Minor, and it's about 1,500 miles away. And he knows about believers are there, and yet he knows that those Christians that are there, that's really not their homeland, okay? He calls it the dispersion. What does dispersion mean? Yeah, scattered. Okay, you... You lived here. Here's your home. Here's what you consider your home. But for whatever reason, now you live somewhere else. Spoke to somebody this morning. New York, New Jersey, you know. New York, Buffalo is is home. And yet somehow you've been in the dispersion down to Georgia, right? (laughs) But that may still be home. And so in one way, you may say, I feel like an alien down here in the South. And she's shaking her head, yes. <laughs> well, these people, we're going to see this word alien come up. And when he says alien, he's not talking about a Martian. He's not talking about somebody who came in from a spaceship or something like this. He's talking about somebody who's not from that place. And we're going to see that throughout this book because he wants us to know from the very beginning that this is where you live, but this isn't necessarily where you feel at home. Christian. This is where we live. Do you think God had intention? Be careful with the answer here. Think through this. Do you think that God intended for us to feel at home here? See a lot of no's. See a lot of, oh, I don't want to mess this up. You were one of the first ones that said no. You don't don't think that we're supposed to feel at home here? Why not? I hate to put you on the spot. Yeah. Our real home is heaven. And guys, we can get really sentimental about that, especially if we've lost loved ones, and especially if we've lost loved ones recently. Then we're going, you know, that's my real home. But it's more than a poem. It's more than a cute little card. It's more than a sentiment that we go through when 
we lose a loved one and we have mom or dad or somebody who's in heaven. No, the biblical record will show this is not our home. Our home is, if we belong to Christ, our home is with him. And he has prepared a place for us. And one day we will be there. And this is our home. And so when we look at the New Testament, we see this reflection that we are just aliens. We are just traveling through. This is not our home. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that we have to be irritated that we're here. But we are not to feel like, man, this is the end all. And this is going to be a very, very important point throughout the book of Peter. Why? Because he writes these churches and they're really suffering under the persecution of the Romans. Nero. Have you ever heard of Nero? By this time, this is written about anywhere from 60 to 65 A.D. Uh, to pinpoint it, we think around 64 A.D. And so by this time, Nero is kind of in power. And Nero really did not like Christians a whole bunch. Uh, he had no problem with genocide. Genocide is when you kind of just want to wipe out an entire race or culture of people, and he had no problem with that. Not to be gross and not to be... Um, uh, kind of inflammatory or anything, but, but he would light Christians. It was not unusual for him to light Christians uh, or dip them in oil, uh, kind of soak them in oil, and then put them on post and use them to uh, light up outside parties. This is very cruel. This is very unusual. And yet this was what was going on. And these people were aware of it. And they're sitting there, and you can only imagine if that's what's going on, if Christianity is being attacked, it's one of those things that challenges your faith. Because in one way, I think even back then, I think they bought into this whole, it's a false idea, but it's kind of a believable lie. Man, if I get God in my life, everything is going to go so smooth. I will never have any more problems. Life used to be like this, and now life is going to be... And there's a part of that, guys, that we kind of believe that. A friend has a problem. A friend, we see their life just going up there. You need Jesus. You know, what's up? you need Jesus in your life. And, and we kind of almost say that in a way that, okay, if, instead of your life doing this, you get Jesus in your life. And, and we will not find any scripture to reflect that. There won't be a single scripture that says, now, do we have a peace that, perse- that passes understanding? Do we have a foundation now for the rest of our lives? Yes. But nowhere in the Bible do you get Jesus, and then all of a sudden your earthly life just goes, Whoo. and yet I imagine they bought that believable lie as much as sometimes we do. That if they just found Jesus, if they just got Jesus, then their life is going to really work out, even in those things that are just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday things. And yet when the persecution comes and all these attacks upon Christianity, it, it challenged their faith. Uh, this is the, uh, we begin to open up and we begin to see these things. Uh, Paul has a response. He says, look, you need to put your hope in those things that are founded in Christ Jesus. Now, guys, there's two kinds of hope. When we use that word, it's kind of loaded in the, lingu- in the English language. One kind of hope that we have is what we would call maybe a, a chance hope, lucky hope. And I'm going to buy this lottery ticket, and I, I think even though the odds are 40 billion to one that I would ever win, I think this is the one. That's chance. That's hope based on chance. That's hope based. I don't believe in luck as a as a you know material thing. 
And, and yet I understand the use of that word when somebody says, man, this is my lucky day. I, I get what you're saying. You can have that kind of hope in life. I just hope my life turns out pretty good. I hope this marriage turns out pretty good. I hope my kids turn out pretty good. And it can be based in chance, or you can have a hope based in truth. Hope based in truth says, okay, the reason I have this hope is because I know this to be true. When we look at the hope that Peter begins to tell all these churches about, it is a hope based in truth, not in chance. Not hope. I hope this is your lucky day. No, because Jesus has done this, this, and this, here's the promises that are going to be true in your life. But here's the whole thing. Hope is an emotion, a thought, a, a thing, something that we, we have because it's not here yet. The kind of biblical hope that we see is a hope that this will come, it just hasn't come yet. Best example that I know, we just talked about it, heaven. How many of you firmly believe that there is a heaven? How many of you firmly believe that one day you will go there? Now, why is that? Because you're just a really good person? Because you're hoping that God's just going to smile on you? Because God is love and everybody, he's just going to go, oh, come on. (laughs) Or is it built upon something that you know has already been settled? That is, that Jesus Christ came, that God took on flesh and lived a life and, and died. We just read some verses about how he went to the cross for us. And all of our iniquities were put on him. All of our sins put on him if we put our trust and faith in him. And now we stand before God, even though we sin every day in a practical, real way. We stand before God, blameless, if our life is hidden in Christ. This is hope based on truth. That's why most of us, not that we welcome death, Not that we want to hurry death. But I don't know about you. I'm not really intimidated by death. And I'm not saying that because I'm a courageous person. I'm not saying that because, you know, just those things don't bother me. I'm saying that I'm going home. I mean, let's not be oversimplistic here. At the same time, guys, let's not be overcomplicated. When my dad passed, my mom was so upset. And I understand that. That was her husband. That was her hero. That was my hero. Did I want every single day I could get with my dad? I sure did. But that moment of sanity came to me when after dad passed and it was just mom and I were standing there and she was just so troubled. And, and I get that. To love greatly is to hurt greatly. And, and I said, Mom, he just got the goal. Isn't the goal that we with God? Is our goal, hey, how long can we stretch out this whole earth thing? And how good can we make it here for as many years as we can? Or is the ultimate goal for every one of us, as, as those who have put faith in Jesus Christ, as sons and daughters of the living King, is our ultimate goal to be in our real home? And that's why he says, okay, you're in exile here. You're in exile here. You're an alien here. This is not your home. And that theme is going to come up throughout this book. But he's also very real about what happens until this hope is realized. How do we live until that day that God calls us home? Look at verse 
6 and 7. In this you, what? Rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through uh, it has been tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of words. I probably wouldn't have said it quite like that, but basically, so okay, how do you, this, until this hope is fully realized, until you're in heaven, how do you re- respond? He says, rejoice, even though there's trouble, there's sufferings. And realize that those are just tests. Test to see, is this really rock-solid gold, what we've put our faith in, that is Jesus Christ? Oh, book's going to be about that. Now, in a way, do you feel that tension? We talk about it a lot. Do you feel that tension between wanting to be a person that rejoices and yet living in the reality that there is suffering in your world? Not in the world, but in your world. Do you feel that tension? I mean, I think it's easy for us to say, is there suffering in the world? Is there suffering in your world? Of varying degrees. Some days are very, very good. And some days are very, very hard. And what he says is, look, as an alien, this isn't your home. Until that time that hope is fully realized, here's the response that I want you to have. Rejoice. Now let's go back about four or five weeks. This is going to be so challenging because uh, I wonder if you were really listening. We, We had four Advent sermons. Which... What word did I say is the leading word that characterizes New Testament Christianity more than any other word in the New Testament? Joy and rejoicing. Thank you. Feel better now. Oh, I don't know. Did we even have a sermon on that? <laughs> no, it's one of those joy and rejoicing. And, and I asked a question that, and, and that's where we're going to kind of end up today. Because, you know, 142 times in the New Testament, either the word joy or rejoicing is directly connected, it's used, and it's connected to uh, our our attitudes and and this description of of who we are in Christ Jesus. Our response, because we are Christians. Now, I asked a question that morning, and I want to revisit that because it's it's kind of a foundational question that, that we will use for the next eight, nine, ten weeks. Would the term joyful, joy, or rejoicing be characteristic of the life that you're living? Maybe you were here that Sunday when we looked at that. And I asked that question, and I don't know what your response was, but it stuck with me, guys. I began to think, you know, I don't know that somebody, hey, tell me about Bobby Lincoln's. Well, there's one word that can describe him. Joyful. Man. I don't know that if you polled 100 people, I would hope one or two would say, joyful. The most descriptive word in the New Testament described New Testament Christianity, those who are in Christ Jesus, rejoicing, joyful. And yet, does it describe us? That's going to be the challenge over the next eight or nine, ten weeks. Because here he says that our proper response is that we really, that we rejoice. Not because of great circumstances, not because everything is just really good, not because, I, hey, I made the team. Hey, I won the, I, I scored the winning goal. No, whether we've had a wide open layup and we missed it, 
And our team lost, so we can say, okay, I rejoice. Why? Because I'm still in Christ Jesus. It did, you know, that game, as much as I love that game or whatever the event is, that's not who I am. Not trying to, to pick sides for tomorrow night, but I sure do hope Clemson wins. I'm sorry. And, and they both have, both, both quarterbacks, Alabama and Clemson, both are strong believers. They're very, very vocal about their faith. But there was, um, I think Sports Spectrum is the, the magazine that had it, and the quarterback for Clemson, they were talking about different things, and he just started, to, started talking about, hey, my identity, football is not the most important thing to me. My identity is in Christ Jesus. And I think that Tua would say the same thing. I mean, everything I know about him is that he and his family are just firm believers in Christ, and that they, he would make that same proclamation. Fact is, somebody's going to win tomorrow night, and somebody's going to lose. Somebody will be national champions, and somebody will be not national champions. And one of those two quarterbacks, both believers, one we can't say, well, God was with Clemson or God was with Alabama. I really know, I don't know that God's for. I know that y'all will disagree. I know the Brumlows, I know the Odoms, you're going to disagree that God is for one of those two teams. But I don't know in the whole big scheme of things that God's going, catch the ball, catch the ball. Yes, yes. I really don't think God could make anything happen if he wanted to. I think he pretty much leaves it, his hand out. Because at the end of the day, whether they are national champions or they lose, either one of those teams, either one of those quarterbacks, there's one thing that is solid. There's a hope that they have. And that hope is not based on if they're the national champion or not. Their hope is in something that is already settled, who they are in Christ Jesus. And I really firmly believe that while naturally they would be upset, whoever the losing quarterback's going to be is going to be naturally upset. I bet by Tuesday or Thursday or by next week, even though they're still going to say, man, I wish I would have done that, just like we do in our lives and our wins and our losses. But I think they would say, but I'm so glad that my whole life did not come down to who won that game. Peter's kind of saying that. This is what First Peter's about. Hey, guys, we're aliens here. There's going to be times that you're going to think this world is full of strangers and that it does just not, that everything you think is almost the opposite of the way that it seems like the current culture goes. And there's going to be times that we see that in our own lives and it gives us a way to respond and that way to respond is to rejoice. We're going to see this word often in there. I saw some of you pick a word of, the, of your year. You know, I kind of like that. Hey, instead of a resolution, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to make sure that I study the Bible for four hours every single day. You know, or I go to the gym for eight hours every single day. Well, if you did those two things, when do you sleep and when do you work, okay? <laughs> but I like when you pick a word of the year. I, I think that's kind of novel. And, you know, with that, I, I think as a church, you know, usually we have a verse and we have a vision statement for the year. I think this would be pretty cool. If, if this is the word that describes Christianity in the Bible... Would this not be something to aspire to, church? That you would just say, hey, my, I just want to be known that could, bad, win, loss. I'm rejoicing. Would that word characterize you? 
best question. Would you want that word to be characteristic of you? Would anybody be offended if when people came up and they said, you know, tell me about Mandy. Man, rejoicing. I just, she just rejoices. Would you be offended by that? Would you say, you know, I really didn't want to be known for that. Who could ever be offended that you're known as joyful, that you are known? Then somebody came up and said, hey, tell me a little bit about Daniel. I said, my man, this guy solid. He's joyful. Would that offend you, Daniel? Nah. Would you want to even aspire that somebody would say that about you? Yeah. So as we go through First Peter, this is going to be the focus. And I pray that it's not just something that we have a word in mind, but that actually that we look at the instruction in First Peter, that we begin to overlook that and think, how do I become this person that's just joyful? That whether win or lose, up or down, Hard times are times of celebration. That it can be known of me, hey, the guy's just joyful. He, he really is just kind of joyful. That even in the saddest times, that he was solid. Yeah, did his emotions get down? Sure. But did he get down? No. Why? Because he has a hope that goes beyond. Not fully realized hope, but hope that is built on something that is fully realized. And that is the finished work of Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. And, Father, as we uh, uh, begin this book and, Father, this study, Father, it's, we're going to come upon some really harsh things that were happening to Christians, things that we have not had to suffer in our own day and time as of yet. And yet, Father, we see this resounding pointing back that, that, that Peter does. He focuses on this hope, this hope that is built on fact, even though it is not fully realized yet. And that the response and the way that we look at that, Father, is that it just brings joy to our lives and a rejoicing. Father, we want to be that kind of people, and we really want to be that kind of church. Father, that we would just be those that rejoice. Because we are so solidly identified in your Son, Christ Jesus. So, Father, we may kid about tomorrow night's game, and we might kid about, oh, who's going to win and lose. But, Father, what confidence. But Father, what, what encouragement that gives me when I look at these two quarterbacks that play for these two great teams and I see that their life is more than football. But Father, that they say, hey, you know what identifies my life? The finished work of Christ. And that's where I put my hope. Let us be that kind of people, Father. In a world that needs to see solid hope and not just hope by chance or hoping that this will happen in some way that's kind of based on luck. Father, let us show them a hope that is built on truth, your truth, and a work that is already finished and done. We love you and we thank you. Make us a rejoicing people as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.